You're listening to audio from the Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. We're so glad that you have come to celebrate with us today. This family of missionary servants who have been sent to make disciples of Jesus Christ. If you're a guest with us today, we we just want you to know how glad we are that you have come to be with us. Uh, We are a people who recognize that we are messed up and in desperate need of grace. And so if you're here today and it's been a tough week, if you're here today and you're not exactly sure you have it all together or figured out, if you're afraid of all of the things that you are thinking still weigh you down, if you're in a place of struggle, you've come to the right place because we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our hope. And so we're in a series of the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles or your phone or whatever you have there, if you want to make your way over to Mark chapter 1, we're in uh, the series called The Servant King. And last week, we opened up the very beginning of Mark, and this week, we're going to be considering verses 14 through 20. But I want to ask you this question. Do you think it's possible that maybe we have it backwards in churches? Is it possible that maybe we misunderstood the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Could it be that we are just like any other religion trying to follow good advice? And in following that good advice, is that the way that we would earn our salvation and our hope? Or could it be that following Jesus and Christianity are different? What would be the difference between the idea of religion being good advice and the reality of the gospel being proclaimed news? What would those implications be for us, and and what would it mean for the rest of our lives? We're going to be looking at Jesus as he calls his first disciples, as he begins his ministry. So have you ever had anybody ask you to do something crazy. Some of you are going, yep, they asked me to marry them. And I'm not talking about something crazy like when you're driving and the light turns yellow and all the kids in the van go, 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 go. I'm talking about if somebody ever asked you to do something and you're like, I don't know, that might be a little weird. I'm not sure I want to take that risk. And what if it doesn't go well? My wife and I, a few years back, were scheduled to go to Scotland. We were going to go and visit some friends, had some things to do, and we had a a week off. And so, you know, we were all excited. We had our passports. We had our bags. We had already packed. We had already checked the weather. And if you don't know about the weather in Scotland, it's always the same, somewhere around 60 and wet. And so we were all ready to go. And I looked at my wife and said, hey, what if we leave a day early? She goes, I don't think that's going to be a good idea at all. She said, first of all, we didn't budget for that, and I don't really know how the airline's going to take that. I said, let's just go to the airport and take a shot at it. Reluctantly, she agreed to get in the car. We made our way to the airport. We got out. We got up there. We're in the little area where the get, you know, the ticket area is. And I said, all right, I'm going to go talk to him. You want to come with me? And she goes, nope. <laughs> said, I'm going to stand here with the bags. And you go talk to him. And I'm like, okay. So I go up, you know, and I start 
talking to this gate agent, and I say, hey, listen, we're supposed to go to Scotland. We're really excited about this. We're not supposed to leave till tomorrow, but I was thinking we could leave today, and I think that'd be great. What do you think? <laughs> the lady looked at me for a second, and she goes, doesn't sound like a bad idea. She said, let me see what I can do. She started pecking on that thing that I don't really know if it's like a mixture of black magic voodoo or whatever it is they do in that little screen. And she looked at me and she goes, yeah, we can make that happen, Mr. Nix. Let me print your boarding passes. I get the boarding passes. I start just walking toward Allison. I didn't want her to know that success had come that easy. You know, I wanted her to think I had to work for it a little bit. And I walk in there. And about that time, she's like looking at me like, is this like a thumbs up, thumbs down? What are we looking at here? And then I hold up the boarding passes. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, yes. So there were some things I hadn't thought through. Like we hadn't told our friends we were coming in a whole day early. So I had to call them while we're navigating these things. And we get there. But we, we made it there. And it was one of those things now when we look back, people who know me are going, I'm not surprised. That guy is crazy. You may want to think twice when he asks you to go do something. But it's one of those things where as we read this story, Sometimes we detach the people that we read about, these disciples, and we make them more like symbols or ideas rather than regular people. And as we consider what it means to be a disciple, we say at the orchard, we're a family of missionary servants sent to make disciples of Jesus Christ. What does it really mean to be a disciple? That sounds like more of that Christianese language that people speak that really creates barriers and confusion more than anything. So what does it really mean to be a disciple? What does it look like if I follow Jesus? What am I supposed to do? How do I even get started? Well, the Gospel of Mark helps us with that. And you're going to find that Mark, as we continue through it, you're going to find it's a fantastic manual for discipleship. So I want us to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, and I'm going to ask you to stand once again that we might honor the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, if you weren't here last week, just so you know, Mark is like the action, the 80s action movie of the Gospels. And so he moves really fast, and you find words like immediately. He doesn't let you catch your breath. You're not sure exactly where you are, and he just goes. And so we finished up with Jesus was, you know, tempted in the wilderness, angels, wild animals ministering to him, and then he just picks it up, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, they're casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, I'll make you become fishers of men. Mark uses one of his favorite words. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And he immediately called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May God bless the reading of his word. Receive it as his living word today. You may be seated. So Mark doesn't give us much time to get ready for this. Jesus has left. We're in the wilderness. There's wild animals and angels who have been attending him after this cosmic implication thing that happened when he faced temptation against our enemy. And then we just move along in time, and it basically says that John was arrested. 
Now, if you're not familiar with God's story, and some of these characters can be confusing, I want you to know the John that he's talking about there is John the Baptist. The one that we read about last week who was calling people to repentance and faith in a way that was very disconcerting for the Jewish people. The only people who needed to be baptized were Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. And so when John calls for a baptism of repentance, it makes religious people nervous and angry. But thousands were coming. And we just have this side note that a relative of Jesus was arrested and put in prison. In the Greek, it literally means that he was handed over. It would be the same term that is used later by Jesus when he said the Son of Man will be handed over. You see the parallels between John the Baptist and Jesus. And the proclamation of the gospel followed by suffering that will ultimately end in death. And so in this, when we read this, it's important not to miss that this John is in prison. And just incidentally, as he is in prison, this is when Jesus decides to come into Galilee. If you can't imagine the scene, it's, it's this. Galilee was an interesting place. Uh, Galilee is this area that, according to the Older Testament scriptures, was Galilee of the Gentiles. There was this promise that uh, the Messiah would come to Galilee of the Gentiles and a light would shine in darkness. And so from Nazareth, Jesus makes his way to Galilee. And if you read God's story, what you'll find is that almost 90% of his ministry is done right around this tiny area. Right around the north end of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret. Sea of Tiberias, all of these are the, referring to the same body of water, about 13 miles by 7 miles, rich in fish. And so there were a lot of things going on. This particular location was a place where it would be multicultural and multilingual. There was a lot of trade and export, a mostly agricultural people, but these gifted businessmen and these long-standing families had figured out ways, even with them being there in the Sea of Galilee, these were shrewd businessmen who somehow figured out how to compete in the market of the Mediterranean. There were a variety of fish, so they would export these things, and many people would be there. Most of them would just be passing through. The people who made their home in Galilee the populations would not have been large, but because it was this area to the north, it was the place that for this stubbornly nationalistic people, any invaders from the north, this would be the first place that they would attack. But it was Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. And John is arrested. He's been at the Jordan. All of these religious leaders, all of these pictures of Judaism have been coming there. He's calling them to repentance and faith, and he's now arrested, and Jesus comes into Galilee. And what does he do when he comes into Galilee? The Bible says that as he makes his way into Galilee, he is proclaiming the gospel of God. Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes and he is preaching. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to have a little bit of sanctified daydreaming from time to time. You ever wonder what Jesus preaching sounded like? 
Did he use rhyme and meter? Did he elevate his voice? Was there hand motions? Did he give dramatic pauses when he would tell these stories using parables? What did he do as far as eye contact with people? How did he figure that out? Where were the ways that he meant, went with the pacing and all of these things? We don't really know, but we just know that he proclaimed the gospel from God. Now, we hear the word gospel, and for us, most of us think, of course, we're talking about the gospel. That means good news, and we have to put a qualifier with it for a reason. The word gospel is not unique to Christianity. The word gospel has been used across many cultures and in many ways. You can see a Roman inscription that says, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And in that, it talks about his birth, his ascension to power, how he issued in the Pax Romana. And so this idea of gospel, although for us it seems very churchy, very Christian, I want you to know this idea of gospel was not unique. This idea of gospel, good news, that would be heralded by servants of a king. This happened in different times, whether it was the Greco-Persian War, where heralds would go out and say, we have fought for you, we have won, you are no longer slaves, you are free. This idea of the gospel. So there is a content to the gospel, and it's really specific. That's why Jesus says, this is the gospel of God. Or we might say, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would use the same designation in Romans 1.1. And he comes into Galilee, and he proclaims his sermon, and his sermon picks up right where John the Baptist left off. Even for Gentiles, the sermon was the same. Repent and believe. And when it comes to repent, those are more of those church words that sometimes we use. It can be a little bit confusing, but what it really means is to reorient oneself, to make a change, a complete reversal. When I was a kid growing up, I'd hear these words, and like Sunday school teachers would say, you know, it's a 180. It's a turning away from, but we miss some of the gospel, and this is where I fear perhaps we've missed the reality of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus doesn't just say, Repent. I I fear that for us, there has been a little bit of that American dream mingled in with the gospel. That American dream where you can give us your tired and your poor and come to the shores and it doesn't matter what you had when you got here. The world is open to you and to those who will pull themselves up by their bootstraps, who will apply themselves diligently. They can have the dream. Wealth prestige, opportunity, all of these things. And I think sometimes, instead of the believe part, we just look at the repent part, and it becomes more like that religious advice than it is a declaration of good news. I know for me, growing up, I I, I grew up trying to be good. I grew up in church where, you know, old ladies would pull your ear and pinch the back of your arm. I got that a lot. I grew up in church where there were certain social constructs and certain ways that you were supposed to behave and certain things you were supposed to do. Children are supposed to be seen and not heard and all these sorts of things. And I would try desperately to be good. But I don't know if your experience is like mine. I messed it up almost all the time. And it seemed like when I would say, oh, I'm getting the hang of this. This is great. I would face plant and stink and six weeks later think I am never going to get the hang of this. It was this gospel dance where I couldn't learn the steps fast enough, and I tripped over my own feet, and I just found myself frustrated. I can't be good. 
but it was that exact dancing and face planting over and over and over that helped me see how sweet grace is to the taste. And Jesus comes and he says, repent, but it's not just to repent, fix yourself, it's repent and believe. Faith needs an object. We're not supposed to just try to be good. We are not just turning away from sin, but we are learning to hate what God hates and love what God loves. We are putting all our hope and trust in Jesus where religious advice says, well, if you'll do this and you'll do this, here's an example that will inspire you. Now go make it happen and you will be saved and you will be okay. The gospel announces the news. You couldn't do it. Jesus did it on your behalf. And to those who will turn away from their sin and look to Jesus to save them and recognize I messed up, I can't get it right, I try and try and never seem to get there. He rescues. He rescues. But this servant king was different. Kings aren't supposed to speak like this. These are values that the world doesn't hold. But he announces this is the gospel of God. And with this repent and believe, he just begins, Mark moves us so quickly, he's just passing along the side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee would be teeming with boats. Certain times of the day, there would be boats everywhere. Josephus says in AD 68 that there were more than 200 boats on this 13 by 7 mile body of water. Now, for us, you're going, wow, that's really crowded. Well, it is, but they weren't on your massive boats. They were small boats, but they littered the entire area. This would be a place where you would find indigent day workers, but you would also find these shrewd businessmen, and you would find families who had been on the water their whole life. And Jesus is walking along, and he encounters a couple of brothers fishing. Simon, who would later be called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And I love the fact that Mark just helps us in case we were confused that they had their nets and they were casting them because they were fishermen. In other words, this is not the, I went and paid $8 for my fishing license so I could do that fishing trip that one time. These were the guys who were always fishing. And they're out there fishing. And Jesus calls to them, follow me. Now, we're going to notice a couple of things about the way he does this. This didn't happen in Nazareth, where he would say, hey, come on up to my house. We'll have a little seminar. I'll put together a little meal, and we'll have a seminar about what it means to follow me. It didn't happen in the temple with priests and Levites and sacrifices and incense. It didn't happen even in the synagogue sitting and listening. It happened in the workplace. Well, these guys were in the middle of work. You have that person at your office that every time you're really, really busy, they knock on your door and want to come in. That person that when you're in the midst, you're finally making traction. Your phone's finally stopped ringing. You finally got enough of those emails out of the way, and you're just ready to get going. And that person comes. Can I talk to you for a minute? And you have that internal struggle, like, I know I need to talk to them, but oh my word, go away. And you know you can't say that out loud. And so you find yourself in this quandary, and they're in there. I want you to imagine these brothers are out there, and they are in the middle of fishing. Somewhere 12, 15, 20 feet wide, 
throwing these nets, weights around the edges until they sink to the bottom, and then they would either pull them up or people would swim down and gather the fish that were inside. And this young rabbi, who probably they have been exposed to at some point earlier, says, follow me. And the crazy thing to me is, they did it. As we move into the Gospel of Mark, you're going to find that we're going to take this journey uh, upcoming to find out that Jesus has authority. It'll culminate in, in the ultimate authority he has even over death. But as you read, he calls these two brothers and he says, follow me. And he says, I, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. Now, this term fishers of men would is very unusual. Some will connect it to uh, Jeremiah 16. But in that context, it is talking about judgment and wrath. I think what Jesus is saying to these disciples is, no, I want you to understand, you're going to reorient your life around me. Your identity will not be in your occupation. It will not be in anything other than me. The same way that Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. They followed him. They just left their nets. We're not told if they had other people around who they handed the nets to. We're not told what was going on in some of the other gospel accounts. We understand that Peter fell down in the water and begs Jesus to leave him, recognizing his sin. But in this simple account, they just dropped the nets. Can you imagine being in a meeting, going over quarterly reports, where we are in our goals, the financials? You're laying out all these things, and some young Rabbi walks in the door and says, all right, everybody out, follow me, let's leave. What? As Simon and Andrew followed him, I can't help but wonder what was the conversation. I can't help but Andrew, wonder if Andrew's looking at him going, what have we done? And Simon, always filled with confidence and bravado, shut up, amateur, we're doing a good thing. Let's get on with it. They go on, they find another set of brothers, James and John, these sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. They're in the boat with their father, with the hired people. This is a fishing enterprise. And Jesus goes, and he goes a little bit further, and he says, come and follow me. And they did. What's it like for a father to be standing in a boat and watch his boys go off with a young rabbi? Not only in the other way was Jesus saying, I want you to reorient your life around me so that you understand your occupation in this light. I think he's also saying, I want you to reorient your life around me and you need to understand your relationships very differently. We get hung up on things like the call to follow Jesus. There have been these books written, you know, radical, crazy love and we get all jacked up for like six weeks. We do the study, get the t-shirt go through the little program, and then six weeks later we forgot what we read and everything's different. But Jesus is saying, I want you to understand, 
Following me is not I'm giving you religious advice so that you can be inspired and do something in your own strength and, and power. This is gospel. This is proclaiming of good news that I alone initiate salvation. I alone save. And when you follow me, everything in your life orbits around me. He would say later, harsh words. In the gospel of Luke. He'd say, if anyone's coming after me, you got to deny yourself. You got to take up your cross and you got to die daily. He would say, he would go so far to say, you got to hate your father, your mother, your spouse, your children, your sister, your brother. And to the casual observer, it may seem like, wait, uh, is Jesus confused? Did he just contradict himself? We found a contradiction in scripture because Jesus also said, you're supposed to love your enemy. So how in the world is he saying you should hate someone couple of things that I would commend to you as you reason in these ways. One, let the expectation be that Scripture's right and I'm wrong and have to figure it out. That's submitting to its authority. Second thing is this. I want you to know Jesus is not saying I want you to actively go and act out hate on them. He is saying, comparatively speaking, your relationship to me will make every other relationship look like hate. In other words, it's like this. Spouses, husbands, you know what your wife needs more than anything? You to love Jesus more than you love her. Parents, you know what your children need more than anything? You, you to love Jesus more than them. Jesus is saying to follow me is to radically reorient your life so that all your priorities, all your relationships, everything you have is now under kingdom values and gospel Values In a world that tells you time is money, I want you to be still and know that I am God. In a world that says that you've got to make sure that you're investing those productive hours, making sure that you can get ahead, do not neglect to feed your soul. To wait on the Lord. Commune with him in prayer. And yet we're so busy. God, we're, trying, we're busy trying to serve you, but as the song would say, how can you serve me when your spirit's empty? When there's a longing in my heart, it wants more than just part. Everything is to be reoriented around the gospel. And now this family, this community coming together, it gives us the picture of what Christ is doing. This is not a sea of nameless faces. These are individuals who have been called by Jesus and make up a new community. The disciples will be with Jesus from here to Gethsemane. Now, sometimes when we hear the word disciples, we always think of just the 12, but I want you to know scripture describes there are a lot of disciples, many disciples. These are some specific ones, and most of them would also be apostles. But when we think of the word disciple, I want you to know that's not just some other classification for just those 12 there. This idea of a disciple is one who is not only following Jesus, learning about Jesus, reorienting their life around Jesus. But it's similar to the way that Plato's star student, Aristotle, started to practice. He was called the peripatetic philosopher because he would walk around, and everybody walked around with him. And all of those disciples would listen to everything he said. They would try to memorize every little saying, every little statement. They would try to put those things together so they could pass that teaching on to those who would come behind them. 
For us, this is the pursuit and goal of our lives, to reorient our lives around Christ so that we are listening to him, walking with him, abiding in him. Some of you might say, well, does that mean I have to leave my job? I don't know. Maybe not. Some of you are going, well, what is this really about? Well, it's not religious advice where you earn his favor. It's a proclamation of good news that Jesus rescues sinners. And I'll say this. This is about the last time you're going to hear Mark speak of the disciples in a pleasant and positive way. And I'm grateful for that. These guys are a bunch of dummies. That gives me such comfort because I am too. When I read about the disciples, it is disappointment, failure, heartbreak. They get it wrong most of the time. And when they get to Gethsemane, they all run. I'm grateful for that. And I think Mark's purpose is not to put a negative light. I think it's a pastoral word to remind us that God uses messed up, broken people. And in case you're wondering who that is, it's all of us. We all need grace. He calls them. Calls them to follow. And it wasn't like, okay, now uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start gathering one time a week. And what I'd like for you to do is maybe you know, bring a little papyrus, get you a quill. Let's fill in some blanks and take some notes. Somebody will organize the food and we'll kumbaya it up, high five, and let's go get it. He said, nope. This is now your life. This is now your family. If we have 168 hours in our week and we spend roughly an hour in here, what are you doing following Jesus through others 167? If we followed the trail of checkbook time, thoughts, and effort, would that trail lead us to King Jesus? Or like me, does it lead to the King of me? Self-absorbed. Always thinking about myself first, struggling, doing the same old stupid things over and over. See, also in these disciples, we see there's a couple important things to remember. That when we follow Jesus, we repent and believe and we come into his kingdom. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Because following Jesus is not just hard, it's impossible without him. He not only gives you the ability to follow him, he gives you the power to follow him. And the sustaining fuel for it is love. You know, when we sing songs like, a hundred billion failures disappear, it's hard for tears not to trickle out the side of my eye. I need that blood to wash me clean. 100 billion is not big enough for my sin. But it is drowned, consumed, flooded in a sea and a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all 100 billion guilty stains. This is grace. And you've been trying to take religious advice your whole life. That's why my premise at the beginning, could it be possible that we got the gospel backwards? Could it be that we miss Jesus? We're not really following him. Instead, we're trying to save ourselves. Could it be that instead of pleading upon his mercies and recognizing that we can't save ourselves and looking to him and saying, Jesus, help me. 
I don't want to do these things. I want to live for you. I want my life reoriented around you. I need your help. It's the sick that the good physician heals, not the self-righteous who think they can heal themselves. It's the broken, the vulnerable, the lonely, the addicted, the troubled, the outcast, the poor. Jesus rescues sinners and bids them follow. So, okay, what does that mean? Well, I want you to know that that means that Jesus not only came to proclaim the gospel, he also is the gospel. And the gospel has a specific content. No, all religions are not the same. No, this is not going to be received very well in a world like ours. But I want you to know Jesus is the one who put the exclusivity on it. He said, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one comes into the kingdom of God or comes to the Father unless you go through the Son by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father, in a divine communion where we become family. The gospel has specific content. And repent and believe is the daily posture for us. I need Jesus to save me every day. I don't know about you. I need to repent and believe every single moment, every single day. I know how weak I am. I know how fast. I don't even have to make it out of the doors and I'm already sinning. I need Jesus. Proclaim that gospel of Jesus. He initiates, we respond, and that's the correct response, and he gives us a new way of looking at the world. And when he bids us follow, I want you to know, he calls us to follow immediately and completely. Jesus is not another thing for your to-do list. He's not another thing for your already overcrowded, busy schedules. Jesus loves you, paid a price you couldn't pay to secure a relationship you don't deserve so that you could have a life that we could not even have dreamed of. But you don't follow Jesus on your terms. It's not, if you do this, Jesus, then I will follow you. You see, that believe part, that trust part is, I believe, just as we sang, that's who you are. You're the way maker. You're the one who will take care of the darkness. You're the one who will heal. You're the one who will do all. That's who my God is. And so I believe that you will do those things. So with no conditions, I give up rights and ownership to my life. I will gladly die to have your life. Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the goal. He's the reward. And we have to reorient our lives around him. Not, okay, Jesus, if you could come into our orbit at least a couple of times here and there. But instead to see that we have centered our lives around him. But also, I don't want you to be uninformed. Being a disciple is a rigorous pursuit. It's a rigorous pursuit. Ask these disciples, what's it like when you leave your family? What's it like when you leave your livelihood? What do you do when there's no place to lay your head? When massive crowds follow you and you don't have anything to eat, much less them. It's a rigorous pursuit. Oh, the soul is at rest. Make no mistake, but there is work to be done. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you so that then you can work out. It's all his grace. It's all his life. There is work to be done. 
this quote from D.A. Carson says this, people do not drift toward holiness. I have never just accidentally fallen into holiness. Let me ask you this. For those of you who started your brand new diet, how's that keto thing going? Or paleo or Weight Watchers or whatever it is. When you started that, did your body do like my body and go, what are you trying to pull here? I didn't want to do that. I didn't like that. It was not comfortable, but I know it reaps a healthy, a healthier existence. So too, in the way that we live for Jesus. Abiding in his word, prayer, communion with the saints, enjoying fellowship that comes because of what he's done. Apart from this grace-driven effort, remember, it's impossible to follow Jesus without God the Holy Spirit, not only enabling you, but providing that power. And apart from that grace-driven effort, you're not going to just gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. What happens to John Nix is I drift toward compromise, and I just call it tolerance or a weak moment. I'll drift toward disobedience, and I'll just call it freedom. Jesus loves me anyway, so I'm okay. I'll, I'll drift toward superstition. That was probably a sign for me. Call it faith. I'll cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and I'll say, I'm just relaxing. I'll slouch toward prayerlessness and delude myself into thinking that, you know, I'm so glad I'm not legalistic, when in reality... I'm convincing myself that my godlessness is actually my freedom. And Jesus says, John, I, I need you to follow me. Your whole life reorients around me. I want you to be family. I want us to be together. I, I, I want you to be a servant. I want you to be for others. I, I want you to know because this servant king commissions, calls, and empowers us to be a family of missionary servants sent to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Those are not just words. Those are rooted in Scripture, these principles that God makes us family. And then we serve like our servant king because he's going to tell us in chapter 10, son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We have the privilege of telling others, hey, can I tell you something? I'm not better than you. I'm the same as you. But let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. You say, okay, John, I hear this. So, so what do I need to know? Here's what you need to know. God loves you. I don't care who you are or where you've come from. I don't care what you've got in your past or the darkness that you find yourself in. I want you to know that God sees you and he loves you and he calls you to follow him. He's the one who has initiated this. In eternity past, he loved you when you weren't even yet here. He loves you and he calls you. He wants you to be his family. He wants you to reorient your life around him so he can give you true life. The second thing I want you to know and that we all need to be reminded of, God uses broken, messed up, vulnerable people who can say, you know what? I was a wreck. I'm still mostly a wreck, but Jesus is working He's always working. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, he's always working. So, okay, well, what do I do? Well, 
two things. One, if you've never followed Jesus, surrendered your life, reoriented your life around him, I want you to know today's the day. And there's no need to wait around and think you've got to figure it out or clean yourself up. I, I want you to know in just a moment, there's a table over there. There's a table over there. There'll be people there. And if you go, I've never followed Jesus. I've never reoriented my life around. I'm not even sure I understand this gospel of God. I want you to come to that table. Tell the people staying there, I need Jesus to rescue and save me. It doesn't matter whether you're religious, irreligious, atheist, agnostic. It doesn't matter. Jesus bids you come. And he will always receive those who know. They need salvation. The second thing is if you're a follower of Jesus, can I ask you, what does the other 167 hours of your week look like? If we follow the trails, do they lead us to King Jesus or somewhere else? Here's the thing. There's grace for that too. And the same grace that saved us is the same grace that sustains us. And it's the same grace that will move us forward and eventually safely home. Are there adjustments that you need to make? Jesus' sermon is mine too. Repent, turn away from it, and believe that Jesus loves you, despite your failure, despite your guilt. I'm not here to give you religious advice. I'm here to proclaim to you that Jesus saved sinners. And I want you to know to those who repent and believe, the kingdom of God is near, so much closer than you could imagine. You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com.